welcome to our interview series on Brave Feminine Leadership. I'm absolutely thrilled today to be joined by Peter Tonner. Peter, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks, Melissa. It's a pleasure to join you. Okay, now let me jump straight into a little bit of your bio so people know who I'm talking to and then we'll get right into the conversation. So um, Peter Tonner has a background as an executive and CEO leading many of Australia's large uh, media companies, including Foxtel and News Corp, and also as a partner of the Boston Consulting Group. More recently, Peter has a portfolio of roles, including board positions and advisory mentoring roles with technology-focused startup organisations, many of which he was an early investor in. Peter sits across um, many ASX-listed boards and other boards as non-executive chairman and is currently the deputy chairman of the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. He's also chairman of Bus Stop Films, a not-for-profit organisation supporting inclusion in the film and television industry. Peter, I could go on for a long time because there's you're a very, very busy person across all these roles you have. But so, as I said earlier, so wonderful to have you here. Thank you for joining. No, thank you. I'm going to ask, for anyone who hasn't had the pleasure of coming across you before, I'm going to ask you to share with us some of your journey and background and who you are as a human being, if I can go that broad. Sure. So I, I guess I should start with a brief overview. Uh, when I was younger, I grew up on the south coast of New South Wales in a small town called Sussex Inlet, where my parents owned a fish and chip shop and then a restaurant. Uh, so a very um, simple and and fantastic upbringing where I was carefree. I could go out on my bike and leave at five in the morning and come home at 10 at night when I was 10, 11, 12, and nobody cared. It was great. So it was a, a perfect mm -hmm. place to grow up. Um, but I soon discovered that actually when school finished, I had to move away from that environment, move to Sydney. And so I, I moved to Sydney and uh, studied at the University of New South Wales while I was working uh, full-time for most of that time. Uh, and really, I guess I would see from there my career really broken into three distinct components. But the first component, I spent about 15 years uh, with the Boston Consulting Group and uh, started straight out of university uh, when I was 20, I think, mm -hmm. uh, and worked there for three and a half years before going to business school at INSEAD in France and then returning to BCG where I spent a fantastic time working across Australia, New Zealand, a bit of time living in Southeast Asia um, and, and um, developed into the role of partner there uh, where I had a couple of extra roles to the normal. One of them was I, I led our organization practice group across Asia Pacific. And the second one was I, I led the internal function of recruitment and career development across Asia Pacific for a period as well. Uh, one of my clients in, during that period was Foxtel. And so having worked with Foxtel for a little while, um, I was approached by the CEO and he asked me to move across. And so that started the second phase of my career, which was in media. Mm -hmm. And the second phase involved, well, first of all, I should say that when Kim Williams said to me, would you like to come and work at Foxtel and you can be the CFO and the chief operating officer and have a, a real job? Um, it was incredibly appealing because most people don't think consultants can do real jobs. And certainly most CEOs would be wary about taking the risk on someone who had never done a line role to give me a role with such responsibility. So that's what appealed to me. Uh, I, I halved my salary and I was happy to do that because I had such confidence in what we could do with Foxtel. Uh, and I then spent uh, 15 years working with 
Foxtel um, through uh, then to be moved within the broader News Corp group into the News Corp um, business where I had oversight of Foxtel and Fox Sports and REA. Uh, as well as working as the Chief Operating Officer of the publishing business and included a stint as CEO of REA Group, which was an amazing experience for me. Uh, and then ultimately ended up as the CEO of News Corporation for a period and then moved back to Foxtel as the CEO of Foxtel. Um, so that was, the, I guess, the second phase of 15 years of my career and has led to the current phase, the third, what I think of as the third stage of my career, which is uh, a portfolio of roles where I really focus on um, a number of different things. Uh, some board roles. Uh, I'm the deputy chair of the ABC, uh, chair a couple of listed companies, and uh, I um, uh, have a, a number of very, very interesting companies, many in media. Uh, I then have a portfolio of personal investments where I'm involved as a mentor and a seed funder often. Uh, with some startup businesses. And then the third part of what I do is uh, some philanthropic activity, including chairing Bus Stop Films, which is an amazing not-for-profit organisation. Uh, and um, I, as part of that philanthropy, I've participated in or led the consortium that rescued AAP, the Newswire, when it was going to be closed down. Uh, and did that as well for a couple of years. Uh, so, and that's really it. That's the, the three phases of my career today. Okay. Um, for anyone listening, how much was there packed into that uh, couple of minute introduction? So let's backpedal on some of that then. And I remember when you and I first met and we talked about your childhood and we talked about your sort of early um, ambitions or, you know, what, what you thought you might be when you were growing up in that small town. Yeah, well, it was interesting for me because I, I grew up in a very small town, it's about 1,500 people. It was a very idyllic lifestyle. And there certainly wasn't high expectations of going off and pursuing a, a serious career outside of the town. It's a great mm. place to live. There's no reason to, to move away. And when I was in year 10 at, in high school, um, my great desire was to leave school to go and join the Air Force. And so I applied to join the Air Force and was accepted. Um, and I would have done that. I was all set to do that. And then I got a call from the career section of the Air Force I've been dealing with who said, look, we think you should stay at school, finish your HSC, and then think about coming back and applying for the pilot program. And um, you can imagine as a, what, a young kid yes. getting told that you could apply for the pilot program is pretty exciting and so that was the only thing that convinced me that I should stop um, spend more time at school and then uh, finish the HSC and go on to become a, a fighter pilot mm. uh, that's not what happened of course but, um, but it was an important point because I would have absolutely left school and become basically a, a mechanic at that point I'm sure that would have been fine as well Absolutely. Um, I wondered for a minute there if you'd left out the fighter part, you know, fighter pilot part of your journey, and I was about to discover a new part that I didn't know about. <laughs> so um, you had a fabulous teacher, though, who pointed you in a direction, I think, in those last couple of years at school. Yeah, so I think one of the problems when you're growing up and going through school is finding people who can give you that real sense of direction. And, mm -hmm. and I think particularly when going off to university is not something that comes natural, but not, not to me, nor to kind of the, the group that I was surrounded by. And, but I had a, a commerce teacher who 
I just adored. He was fantastic. He was a great teacher, very caring and um, very inspiring. And he pulled me aside one day and said, look, you're really talented at this. You should go to university. You should study business. It's something that you're made for. And it really made me stop and reflect and think about not just doing what intuitively I thought was right, but stepping back and thinking about where I thought I could excel. What were the areas that I thought I could make a difference that would also kind of connect with me? And I think we often talk about uh, kids these days finishing school and not having a real sense of what they want to do and that that doesn't matter. I don't think it's any different to when I was at school. I didn't have any sense of what I wanted to do. The only difference was that I fortunately had somebody who helped to redirect me to an area that was much more suited to me as a person rather than my aspiration of thinking yeah, it'd be great to be a fighter pilot because who wouldn't? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, are you still in touch with that teacher or have you been able to stay in touch? Um, not recently. I, I stayed in touch for a long time and I'm, I'm sure we'll run into each other again, but uh, no, not recently. Yeah. yeah. Um, I always wonder about those influential teachers when they have such a big impact at a certain stage in your career. So, Peter, you've then you've headed off to university and straight out of university found yourself at Boston Consulting Group. And my understanding of your time there, um, and you were relatively humble, I think, in sort of brushing past it, but you were you identified early as pretty strong talent within the team. Yeah, I was very fortunate that. Um... I, I was sponsored by BCG to go to business school. I went to INSEAD in France and did an MBA at INSEAD. Uh, I could have never done that without the support of BCG. And I could have never really even thought about that as being a great place to go without the inspiration of the people that I was working with. And there, there was one particular partner who I really enjoyed working with who had studied at INSEAD. And he was really the one that drove me to go there rather than to go to the US or to stay in Australia and go to the AGSM or the MGSM. And uh, it, it was an amazing experience. I think you, could, you can never compare um, the opportunity of spending 12 months living in another country, learning another language, um, doing a business degree at one of the world's leading business schools mm -hmm. with a cohort of people that still remain very close. It's, it's an amazing experience. Mm, incredible. Okay, so part of the questions that I'm exploring in this series with people is around leadership and around whether leaders are born or made. I would love your perspective on this. So uh, I think there's always a combination, whichever way you look at any individual and their achievements. I don't think there are very few people, I think, who were born and didn't polish and, and tidy up and improve in what they were doing. And there's very few people who basically didn't have any inherent talent and, and built themselves up from there. What I would say is that my sense of leadership and my focus on my capability has changed dramatically over the years. And so I think if you spoke to anybody who worked with me in my very early days at BCG as an analyst, they would say that I was incredibly data-driven, incredibly analytically focused, and I was the, the numbers guy, the analytical guy. Um, over my career at BCG, I shifted that quite dramatically, and I became much more focused on the people side of consulting, uh, hence running the, the whole people function across Asia-Pacific, and hence leading the organization practice group in that area. It's not something that 
I think anyone who worked with me for the first two or three years would have said was a natural fit for me. But it's something I became obsessed with because if there was a criticism of BCG in those days, it was that we were the smartest people in the room, that we solved the toughest problems in the room, but that then we walked away and we left the client and the client had no idea what to do. And I was obsessed with this idea that if you want to have an impact, you have to be able to influence people and you have to be able to drive change and you have to be able to embed the recommendations in the organisation. And it's not good enough just to have the best answer. You have to have an answer that is going to have an impact. And so I had shifted my focus. I wasn't born to be good at that stuff, I'm sure. Um, but I became very good at it through a real focus and a real intent on, on studying and learning about people and people dynamics. Did something, was there a, a, a shift, a reason, a point in time that you kind of went, because, you know, it was a shift, wasn't it, from the analytical path into the leadership side? Yeah, I, I think some of that would have come, I think, from my time at INSEAD, uh, where I had exposure to a much broader range of topics than what I had had exposure to when I was you know, studying a business degree. Um, I think some of it was just frustration about, I, I was a consultant for a long time, 15 years is quite a long time in consulting terms. And one of the things that I think many consultants find is that you actually want to have an impact. You want to see the change happen in an organisation. And I was very fortunate to be with BCG at the time where they were transitioning from being all about the, the smartest people coming up with the best answer to being the people who actually drove change. In fact, uh, I, I think we had a, a framework at the time that said our business was all about insight, impact and trust. And I was great on the insight bit. Mm -hmm. And I, I was obsessed with helping to uh, deliver the impact and building the trust. And so that was probably the key driver for me was the realisation that that's what makes for a satisfying career, for me at least, and it's also what makes for satisfied clients. So, yeah, so a natural what shift. You, what do you call out as, you know, in your own leadership journey, and if I can um, put out there in your, your shift from being a good to a great leader, what do you call out as the core moments if you had to call out two or three along the way? I think one of them was definitely around sitting back and thinking about what the principles were by which I wanted to operate as a leader. And so I, over the years, I developed five basic principles, which, if you like, are the things that I believe are important in in being a good leader for me personally yes. and reminding myself of those, sharing those principles with people I was working with so that they understood a bit more about me. And, and I think having that clear view as to how you want to be seen and what you want to stand for is a really important component of leadership. Can and I ask what they are? Sure. Um, it's been a long time since I've spoken about them, but I still remember them. And I think that's important because it, it, they're deeply ingrained within me. Um, so the, the very first one is I've got a strong belief that you have to know who you are and know what you stand for before you do anything. Uh, and to give you an example, when I was at BCG, one of the things that was very clear for me was I wasn't the, the rainmaker. I wasn't the guy who went to a client and uh, did a presentation pitch and immediately everyone walked out of the room and said, oh, we have to work with this guy. Yes. But once I had started working with a client, I was there for years. Most of my clients at BCG I worked with for uh, some of them 10 years. Yeah. And 
And so it was important for me to recognise that, not to beat myself up about the fact that I wasn't the rainmaker, but to concentrate on what I was and what that meant. Mm. And so that's just one example. But I think really understanding yourself deeply is really important. And I guess another component is of sharing that so that making sure that the people you're working with understand who you are and what you stand for as well. Brilliant. So I think that's important. Uh, the, the second key principle for me, which I still believe strongly in, is building deep partnerships. And I always felt that it was important that if I was working with a client when I was at BCG, it was all about building a relationship that was going to endure, not getting a project done and getting out of there. Equally, when I was at Foxtel, I, for example, I transitioned us from having seven contractors who would install Foxtel for, for us that were on rolling three-month contracts. And I moved to having two contractors where we signed them up for five-year contracts because I didn't see we were going to get value or they were going to get value unless we built these deep partnerships. And I think it's true of the people you work with. It's true of the customers that you serve. It's true of the suppliers you work with. And that's an important principle to me. Um, the third thing for me is embracing diversity. Mm. And I think, and I say embracing rather than tolerating or accepting, but actually saying it's important to have diversity. It's important to have diversity in gender. It's important to have diversity in race, but it's equally important to have diversity in thinking and being able to challenge each other. And that's something that I'm very proud of is really grasping onto that and driving that. Mm. Um, the, the fourth thing for me, and this is, I guess, somewhat um, cerebral, I guess, but uh, I call it avoiding artificial harmony. And in a lot of the organisations that I've worked with, where we've failed or where we've had issues is where everyone's nodded their head and agreed and said, yes, I'm right behind it. Um, but they haven't been. And so one of the things that I really hold out as important to leadership is fighting artificial harmony, going around the room, asking people if they agree. And I, I did this once. And the, the example that stands out most to me is a product launch uh, with one of the organisations that I worked with and I went around the table and there were 22 or 23 people and every single person said that they thought we were ready to launch this product and I just didn't feel like they were reflecting the true position and so I said well I'm not I think we have to stop we have to reassess and then we'll, we'll launch the product you know when we're ready and it took us I think another 10 weeks until we were ready and that was good evidence for me that we were dealing with groupthink of everyone wanted to get the product out the door. They knew that it was a critical path item for us. They knew it was key. And so no one was willing to put up their hand and say, hey, stop. And I think that's something that has to be really encouraged as a leader. Were you the leader? Were you the leader or one of the... Yeah, I, no, I was a leader at the time. Um, and I, I, uh, it was a very hard decision for me because it was my accountability. It was my KPI. I'd been the one who'd been driving people very hard to be ready to launch um, but it was very clear that um, it was the right thing not to launch but equally clear to me it was a great reminder that when you're a leader that people will try to please you when you set tough objectives and you drive hard to deliver those objectives people will do everything they can to try and meet those objectives because that's what you want and you have to give them the opportunity to say, no, I, I actually, I can't go ahead like this. Mm. So and that's the, the, fourth, one? the fourth one. The, the last one is uh, what I call being match fit. And I think every organisation, particularly in today's environment, 
um, has to be able to be agile, has to be able to move quickly. And so you need to be match fit. You need to be treating every day as though you have to pivot tomorrow and you have to go and do something else or that your competition is going to be different. And so that idea of thinking about the organisation and ensuring the organisation is match fit is really critical to me as a, as a leader. It's equally critical to me as a person that as a leader, you also have a pretty tough life that you you work very hard typically, you have a lot of stresses. And one of the things I've always believed in is that you can perform much more effectively if you're match fit. And if you're match fit and you believe the organisation has to be match fit, then all those around you will also be match fit. They're fantastic principles. And I share those because I know that they'll resonate very strongly with, with the audience. So um, if you think then of two times in your uh, sort of executive or even in your non-executive career when have been two times when one of those you've called one out for us I guess in that situation you just used but what else comes to mind as some of the biggest lessons that really shifted your leadership up a level? I think I, I guess I alluded to it in terms of building deep partnerships but I often had seen uh, that people go through, for example, a procurement process where it's all about getting the right price and where organisations are willing to say this this company that supported us or supplied to us for many, many years is no longer as cost efficient as this one and so therefore we're going to replace them. And I think there has been a tendency to drive for efficiency a lot in Australian business and that often leads to procurement processes where the outcome of the procurement process is more important than the, the relationships and the feeling and the knowing that you're going to be well served. Yes. And I've seen it fail time and time again. And, and I think one of the deepest challenges for business today is actually getting the balance right between those two things so mm -hmm. that you, you have the right supplier who is not having a lender view, not charging higher prices because there's a great relationship, but more one that says, hey, this is a a relationship where we're going to work together in a really productive way. Um, a, a good example actually would be when we were at Foxtel uh, and we moved from Piermont to North Ride and we had a very significant construction project and we used a company called BuildCorp. And um, BuildCorp was the building contractor. We had very, very um, thick documents, contracts. And of course, a lot of things went wrong. But never once in that project did we have to pull out the contract. Every single time there was an issue, um, Tony Sucker, who was the principal with his wife of Bill Corp, and, and, and I would sit down and we'd work it through and we'd come to an agreement. And that was really important to me because we wanted to get an outcome. We didn't want to be in court. We didn't want to be arguing about things. But because we had such a great partnership there, we were able to you know, solve the problems in a productive way that didn't, didn't uh, harm his business, didn't harm our business and got the right outcome. And he, he remains a, a great friend today after all of those years. And I would continue to use Billcorp, I have continued to use Billcorp when I can, um, where it's uh, appropriate because I know that I can trust them. I know they're always going to deliver the best outcome. That's, um, I mean, I sat for many, many years on the supplier side of many of these large sort of commercial negotiations. And we always came from a really deep trust perspective and built long-term relationships. And the style that you're talking about um, got the best out of everyone. 
Yeah, uh, and if I use the example of the installers at Foxtel, suddenly when the installation company knew they had a five-year contract, they spend money on new vans and they spend money on new shirts for the team and they spend money on technology and invest behind making the experience better. And that's what we needed. What we didn't need was to shave 10 cents off the price of installation. What we needed was to improve the customer experience. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, one more before I change up where we're where we're heading. <laughs> what one more example? Yeah, or, one more example that sort of tested you and stretched you and. Ah, oh, there are so many, so many to choose from. You know, you know, I think um, maybe if I talk about the one I'm most passionate about, which is this idea of being match fit, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I've uh, had many real highlights in my career, but I've also had some lowlights. And the worst times for me were always those times where I basically had either worked so hard or had become so stressed about a particular issue that I became ineffective. And and to me, one of the most important things as a leader is recognising that in an organisation and in yourself, because it's one of the, I think, the gravest issues facing companies, particularly in an environment where you want to change, is where the organisation is so tired or so unable to to shift because of stress or of other elements. And and I think part of being match fit is recognising that and recognising when you have to take a step back to let things settle a little, to work through what are the things that we need to do to make the organization more capable for change. It it raises, I guess, one other, it's not on my list of five principles, but one of the things I truly believe in is that there seems to be a philosophy when you try to drive change in an organization that you should create a burning platform. And you often see, you read in textbooks about you create a burning platform because if you create a burning platform, then people see the need to change and they will change. And I personally have a fundamental issue with that as a concept because every time I've worked in an organization where there's a burning platform rather than seeing that driving change what I've seen is it driving inertia and it drives people to be scared and when people are scared they're like a deer in in the the spotlight and they can't move and so that idea of not creating a burning platform but creating a burning desire or a burning ambition so that people move because they see there's a great place to move to rather than because you've scared them so much about the existing business that they've got to move. Uh, I think that's part of being match fit is actually recognising that, you know, it's a, it's a positive approach. It's an optimistic approach. You're heading to somewhere rather than running from somewhere. That's so timely right now as well. When you think of all of the, you know, conversations and media around the sort of great resignation. Um, What's your perspective on that, Peter? Uh, I think, I have a view on the great resignation that, first of all, it's not as severe in Australia as it is in the US. I think the US, it's it's really severe. And I think there's some underlying fundamentals as to why that's the case. Nonetheless, we are seeing it in Australia. And I have a personal view that some of that is driven by the increasing uh, impact of people working from home and organisations not adapting quite understandably, but not adapting well enough to build those social bonds with their workforce and I think if if you're working with people or in contact with them and uh, teaching them coaching them even 
hearing them in the corridors, you can generally pick up if somebody is a bit dissatisfied or someone has an opportunity they're thinking about. I think when you're working remotely, that's much, much harder. And I think you start to break the social bonds and it becomes easier for people to leave a work environment, but it also becomes harder for a leader to identify that someone is thinking about leaving. And so I'm hopeful that two or three things happen that might address that. One is that, first of all, I think flexible working is here to stay, and I think that's terrific, but I think there will be more people who return to office environments um, for some period during the week, and that will help to build some of those bonds. I think we'll learn a lot more about how to manage remote work environments. And in fact, there's a, a terrific book called remote, The Remote Work Revolution, which was written by Sadal Neely, a Harvard professor, who is an amazing professor, one of the, the most interesting people I've, I've uh, met with. And uh, she's written a book about how you build those bonds or how you manage remotely and the, the ways in which you need to change your behaviour to adapt to that. I think we'll learn more of those techniques and that will help as well. And I think the third thing that will help is that I think part of the big shift has been huge demand for people in particular parts of the economy. And so people being lured away for higher salaries and um, stock options, et cetera. I, I think as we see a bit of a settling of that, as the supply opens up a little bit more, uh, and as people start to recognise that actually there's much more to a career than money. And for many people who've gone to join, I don't know, say tech companies where there's big options, um, that those options aren't necessarily worth as much as they thought they were. And hopefully all of that, so we get a better company's organ, uh, providing a better work environment for remote working, which can rebuild those bonds on the positive side. Uh, but on the other side, I think a recognition that the grass isn't always greener and hopefully that will start to settle a little bit the, the great resignation. Or, or as I've heard it referred to, it's actually rather than the great resignation, it's actually the great shift of people shifting between um, different organisations. Absolutely. And and many working out the grass isn't greener. You know, it can be quite hard yeah. to replace those cultures remotely as well. So it's um, it's interesting. So, um, okay, I wanted to ask you now then, um, I know that you sponsor a lot of female executives and, you know, have today and, and have throughout your career. Can I just ask your perspective on whether you believe you need to sponsor female executives any differently than males? Uh, yeah, I do, actually. And uh, I would like to say that, um, you know, you should treat everybody equal, but I just don't think that that is the case. I think... I think there are barriers to females succeeding. Some of them are internal barriers and some of them are external barriers. Um, and let me give you one example from my time at BCG is when I was at BCG, we noted that we had a big skew towards males in our recruitment off university campuses. And yet we know that it was roughly 50-50 male-female graduating from university. And we struggled to see why we weren't recruiting more females. And I ran a project over a very long period. We studied this got into a lot of depth. And the single most important issue was a trivial one, which is that we would write letters to all of the, the students at university or put posters up and it would say, are you in the top 5% of your cohort? And a bloke would look at that and say, ah, oh, top five, I'm in the top 50. It'll be right, I'll give it a go. Yeah. And a female would look at it and say, oh, I'm not in the top five, I'm only in the top seven, so yeah. I better not apply. 
And so by changing the wording and the way in which we uh, presented the opportunity, we were able to dramatically change the ratio of applications in a very short period of time. What did you change it to say? Oh, I think I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was it was trying to avoid focusing on a, a quantitative view oh, of no. how you're performing. It was moving to a much more um, non-quantifiable qualitative perspective of, you know, are you interested in solving problems? Are, are you, uh, you know, looking to work across different industries? But it was much more around what we were providing and offering rather than leaving it open to interpretation as to am I good enough or not to meet yes. this, this role. Okay. And so that's at the entry point. So that's at the, at the entry point. Yeah. I, I think the other thing that, and again, a lot of this has changed over time, which I think is terrific. But I think the other thing is, again, a well-known concept, but that often females are ignored in meetings and that, it, I, it shocked me at one point in my time at BCG to understand, sorry, at, uh, at Foxtel, to discover that the female executives had gotten together and worked out that when one of them asked a question and were ignored, the other one should, or one of the others should step in and should ask the same question in a different way. And the fact that they had to do that was very confronting to me, that that was a natural behaviour that had developed within the team, that they listened that we, I shouldn't say they, we listen to male colleagues more readily than we listen to female colleagues. And I, I, I think that requires a change and requires a, a shift in the dynamics. Um, the other example I would use is um, one of the initiatives that uh, I know came out of the Male Champions of Change of um, panel diversity, or the panel pledge it was known as, and I'm sure it still exists, where we committed that we wouldn't appear on a speaking panel yes. unless there was an equal proportion of males and females and every time that, that I said I won't appear on this panel unless there's an equal proportion the response was always but there's no females who are able to join the panel and every single time if I put my foot down or if any of us in the male champions of change put our foot down and said well that's okay you go and find another male it won't be me and they went off and went looking for females they found them but there was you might have to dig a bit deeper. You might have to look for, particularly in underrepresented groups, you might have to look harder in order to be able to find the people that you want. Mm. Um, another good example would be an organisation that I um, am chairman of today. It's a startup organisation and we have 15 uh, engineers uh, within our team. And we decided right up front that we wanted to stand out for being employers of female engineers. Now, trying to find female engineers is incredibly difficult and a startup environment is incredibly high pressured where there's a lot of work to be done and you don't have time to not have a full contingent of staff. Yes. But to the credit of our CEO, he said, if I can't find female, I'm just going to leave the position vacant until I can. And so I signed an employment contract yesterday for the female we needed to ensure we got the balance back um, in our team. And so... I think it, it's it's a matter of having that conviction and deciding that you are going to get the right person, that you are going to go out there and ensure that you achieve it. Now, I, I personally, and I know this is a really controversial topic, and so I apologise in advance, but I personally hate the idea of quotas. Yeah. Um, and the reason I say that is I don't want any female who I ever employ in my career to think she has the job because there's a quota. 
but I really do like the idea of quotas in shortlists so that if I'm going to interview for a new role, I like the idea I'm going to see the, the might be the two best male candidates, the best two best female candidates. And that way, at least I ensure that I'm forcing others who may have an unconscious bias to at least find me the best candidates who are female. And I, you know, I've appointed a um, CEO of a, an Australian listed company recently who's a female. Um, she was one of very few females on the short list. She was the best candidate. She was appointed not because there's a quota, but she was appointed because she's the best candidate. Yeah. Um, and I'd, I'd like to think that in every situation that um, the short list would have had females. In this case, I'm sure we would have had females on the short list, but not in every case. And insisting that they be considered is very important. You've raised so many incredible points there. And one that um, jumped out at me was um, last year when I was doing one of the earlier series, um, the wonderful ABC program actually misrepresented um, was out and about where the term, you know, the gender deafness issue was being yeah. flagged. And I think being flagged, I think it was Julie Bishop who kind of threw it on the table at the time. Um, and, and it still amazes me, Peter, how alive and well that issue is and the number of females I talk to who the minute you bring it up and ask the question, and I've asked many successful leaders in these interviews, straight away it's like, yeah, totally, get it. Um, so I think that's a really good point. And we do have a large number of males in, the, in our audience who view these, um, these conversations. You know, I think it can be a really simple thing you know, how did you change that at Foxtel? What did you do when you became aware of it? Yeah, I think it's an uh, element of consciousness about yeah. it um, that's important. And I think there's also an element of, that, so once you have the, the awareness and you can start to share the awareness, then I think you get some natural fixes. I wouldn't say at all that I fixed it at Foxtel by any stretch. I think mm -hmm. I made progress and I had a terrific executive team and we made progress together on that and we we're very conscious of it but we still had a long way to go um mm. equally when i was the ceo at news corporation one of the things i was really proud of is that my executive team was 50 50 male female in a traditional media organization and that was considered unusual the thing i was more proud of was the fact that that had been unconscious i hadn't consciously said i want it to be 50 50 it's just the way that it turned out but i think I attribute some of that to the awareness that I had developed and I'd attribute some of that to just having the luck of a fantastic set of females to choose from. Peter, can I ask, um, you know, I sort of, I think in order for us to really drive the change, because it's still fairly glacial, the pace in terms of the number of females reaching CEO roles in particular, particularly if we look at our top ASX organisations. And, you know, my perspective, I think, is that we're in this together and we all need to be feminists can I be as bold as to say you come across with really, really strong sort of feminist values? Where do you think that comes from? Oh, it's a very good question. I, I think it's a belief not in feminism or in, in females, but a belief in this principle of embracing diversity. And I, I'd like to say that it's equally across race, across sexual orientation, across thought process. Um, there's one of the advantages, I think, of working in a media organisation, particularly somewhere like Foxtel, is we have incredibly creative people who are uh, creating great TV shows. 
and then you have incredible engineers who are ensuring that the uptime for the service is uh, 99.9999%. And so very detail focused, very um, methodical and oriented. We used to call them the, we've got the colored pencils and the calculators. And, and I think there's probably few organizations that have that level of diversity of thinking and diversity of, um, I guess, mindset. And I think that helps because when you're working with people of such extremes on your executive team, you, you're valuing the diversity that's often unrecognized. Now, we all talk about diversity. The first thing people think about is gender. Then the second thing they think is race. Yes. And then sometimes they think about sexual orientation, but they rarely think about the different ways of thinking and different um, ways of processing problems, the different uh, personality types. And I think they're equally important. How do you how do you check your team to make sure you've got a good balance of all of that then? Well, I, th I think first of all, I think it's a flawed approach to say you're going to have X percent of these and X percent of these because what you find when you do that is that you're always going to miss out on something. Yes. Um, I, 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 so I think that the starting point actually for me in many of the roles that I've had has been around how can we serve our customers if we don't have people who represent our, our customers or are representative of, of our customers managing the business? And I think that's a really good starting point because it then says that I'm not going to have a checklist and say, hey, am I there? But I am going to be thinking about who on my team really understands, if I use Foxtel as an example, who really understands the sports lovers, um, who really understands the drama lovers, um, who really understands those people who can't afford the platinum package and can only have a smaller package and how they're going to behave, who understands the, the streamers who aren't re, are never going to take on the core product but instead want to have a more flexible product. And I think if you think about it through a customer lens, is probably as good a lens as any to consider um, have you got the right people on the team. An example for me at Foxtel was we didn't have, ironically, uh, a lot of really deep sports lovers on the team but sport was incredibly important and so a couple of things that we did was we would involve the CEO of Fox Sports on our in our executive team whenever we could and second thing we did is we introduced a footy tipping competition for the executive team and so we all at least started to get this mentality of okay we have to take our submit our sporting tips every week so we have to understand the teams we have to get get more attuned I guess to the gap that we had in our diversity it sounds like a silly example but I think it, the the idea of saying if we've got a gap with our customers how we're going to fill it is really important okay um have you always felt like you belonged um no I'd say probably not and uh, I would say um if I take BCG as an example, I always felt very comfortable at BCG. I always felt that it was, you know, my home, mm. but I didn't ever feel like I was the same as the other people in the organisation. And similarly, I'd say at News Corp, I, there were elements of me that don't fit with News Corp and there are elements of me that fit with News Corp. And in some ways, I would say I, I thrive on being a little bit of an outsider, insider. I think, yes. And I think that's... And in, an important thing, if I go back to my very first principle of know you, who you are and what you stand for, I think it's really important to understand what suits you best in terms of style, 
what didn't suit me well is working in an environment where everyone's the same. What did suit me well is working in an environment where there's a lot of diversity and where I, I'm not necessarily the same as everyone else in my mindset or my, my approach. Mm. Okay. Is there a soft skill that you're still working on developing? Oh, I think so many of them. So many of them. Uh, I, I would say probably my, if I had to say what's the skill I'm most working on, it's probably good, direct, honest feedback when it's negative. And, uh, I think I'm I'm um, quite focused on feedback. Or as I as I read recently in uh, one of the books that I'm, I've become obsessed with, um, feed forward is a better way of thinking about it than feedback. But um, I, I think the the idea of giving feedback or feed forward has always been important to me. But I have always and still do struggle to be direct enough when there's bad feedback to give. The feed, feed Forward book. Uh, so that's a, a book by Holly Ransom. It's called The Leading oh, yeah. Edge. Yes. Yeah. You told me you were reading that. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, and Holly, I think, is uh, Holly's very, very young. Uh, her, one of her claims to fame is she's the first Australian to have interviewed both Obamas. Um, and she has an incredible wealth of understanding of leadership through what must be hundreds, if not thousands, of interviews of of different world leaders from all walks of life. From I, I interviewed her in my last series. Oh, great. Yeah, wonderful. Um, wonderful person. So, And it is a fantastic book, so um, totally agree on that. So final, well, I've got two more questions I want to ask, but I know you are an extraordinary sponsor to a whole range of females across a lot of the businesses that you're involved in. What do you see as your role as a sponsor in that? Well, it's, it's interesting you, you say sponsor because uh, one of the things that I learned at BCG, and I guess it's a little bit to your earlier question, but one of the things I learned at BCG is that there's a difference between um, a mentor and a sponsor. Yes. And to me, it's, a mentor is very important that a mentor is giving all the feedback, good and bad development opportunities, but almost starts from an unbiased perspective that says, I'm just here to give it to you straight. I think a sponsor, the role of a sponsor, I think is literally to sponsor someone. So yes, you need, to give the, yeah, you need to give the positive and the, the negative feedback, but you have to always take it from the perspective that I've chosen to sponsor this person. And so I'm an advocate. And I think when people are looking for sponsors, they should be looking for people who are gonna advocate for them. People are gonna be honest with them, but who are really gonna advocate for them and uh, going to bat for them are going to keep them in mind and say hey here's an opportunity for you or I'm going to fight for this person even though I know there's some weakness over there we can cover that weakness and support them with you know scaffold up some support that's going to um, ensure they're successful but it's much more proactive I think. Okay and so that's what you do in those roles? It is yeah yeah. Okay. Okay, my final question, Peter, is from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership mean and do you think it needs to change? Uh, so, so I think it's no different to brave leadership generally. You know, to me, it's about um, having the, the best view of the team that you're working with and how you support the team that you're working with 
and support them to perform at their peak um, and perform at their peak for the long term rather than the short term. And I, I think that one of the issues is it's for the long term rather than the short term. And that means you do need to uh, manage the pace. You do need to manage the weaknesses or the development areas. You need to really think about the long term. And I think it is about leading the team, not doing everything yourself. And I think that means listening to the team. It means understanding where you can intervene and help, where you should stand back and let them go for it. But the most important thing is it's making sure you've got alignment of that team so that everyone's heading in the same direction with the same goals, the same objectives. And often that means um, acting when there's not alignment. And that could be to pull people into line. It could be to remove people where necessary and replace them, or it could be to change the direction. If there's enough people on the team who aren't heading in that direction, there's probably an issue. Peter, it's been fantastic having you join the conversation, an extraordinary sort of thoughtful leader um, and extraordinary successful leader over your career. I also just offer my congratulations, and I say, I say this with a bit of tongue-in-cheek. I, I noticed that Sarah Ferguson's been announced as the replacement for Lee Sales, so clearly my interview was a bit too late. So. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic spending time with you. I really, really appreciate you joining the conversation. No problem. Thank you. Nice to talk to you. Thanks.